I encourage you very much to be at our business meeting after church today. One of the things we'll be doing is looking at our church wedding policy. It is always very critical for any person in a church to know who can be married in that church, but in these days it is very, very critical. And so we will be going over that policy. If you can't stay, be sure that you get one so you can take it and look at it. Well, this morning, I want to ask you uh, which well-known pastors had the following experiences. Uh, Perhaps you might be able to guess who these men are. In a small church in Boston, there was a power-hungry leader who sought to intimidate this pastor. One day, he walked into his office, pulled out his concealed weapon. And he said to this pastor, as he unloaded six shells from the weapon, reloaded those six shells, snapped one in the bullet chamber, said to him, I always carry a concealed weapon and it is always loaded. Don't you ever cross me. And he walked out. The pressure from that man's intimidation became so great that one night this pastor broke down in his bedroom and bawled like a baby. Who was that pastor? You'd be surprised. It was Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Which pastor was physically assaulted in one of the most famous churches in America by one of his deacons. That was Pastor Warren Wearsby in Moody Church. Which pastor was called one evening by white supremacists who said, we are coming over this very night and we are going to kill you. That pastor was Pastor E.V. Hill, who had a wonderful ministry in the Watts area of Los Angeles. How many of you knew that being a pastor was so dangerous? I can tell you this morning, it is certainly not for cowards. There's no question about that. Now, I share these stories with you for two reasons. One, sometimes we think high-profile Christian leaders have had an easy time of it, don't we? And that is not true. The second reason I share these stories is if they suffered personal attack and opposition, so will we. And it can come in a variety of ways. It can be a boss who intimidates us because he enjoys controlling his employees through fear. It might be a jealous co-worker who spreads uh, rumors about us that poison the atmosphere and seek to turn other workers against us. It could be a spouse who cuts us down with nasty words simply to inflict emotional pain upon us. Or it might be a friend or even a family member who has turned their back upon us for simply selfish reasons. Now, in all those situations, the question that we ask is, how can we find the confidence that we need to carry on in those life situations? 
How can we learn to grow in our trust of God? Last Sunday, we began a series in uh, the Confidence Psalms in the book of Psalms. And this morning, we're coming to another one of those psalms. We're coming to Psalm 4, and I've entitled this psalm, How to Have Confident Trust Under Personal Attack. Now, let me remind you what the confidence psalms are. The dominant theme of these psalms is the confidence with which believers can face the crises of their lives. The first two prayers of the psalms are by David when he was being pursued by his own son Absalom and many of his former friends. Psalm 3 was written in the morning. The morning after, the most dangerous night when God had enabled David to safely cross the Jordan. Sometime later, Psalm 4 was written in the evening as David reflected on how God had sustained him. God will do the same for us as we learn from David how he gives us confident trust. Would you take a moment and bow with me in prayer? And let's ask the Lord to teach us this morning. Father, when we are under times of opposition, distress and uncertainty, it is so easy for us to hear words. But sometimes, Lord, we hear those words and we say, I'm not sure they really work in my situation. But we're so grateful that when we come to the Psalms, here is a man who was under great distress. He was being opposed in an incredible way. And yet in the midst of that, he found a confident trust in the Lord that helped him. And because of what he experienced, he now can help us in a real way. Encourage our hearts today as we learn how to trust you more in any tough situation. For Jesus' sake we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 4, and let's notice, first of all, we find confidence when we pray based upon what we know about God. That is the first thing we need to understand. Now you will notice how this psalm of David opens in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, he says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Let me say to you, this here is the basis for why any child of God can come boldly to the throne of grace. It is because of what we know about God. Now notice David tells us here that God is righteous. Uh, He says, O God of my righteousness. In the uh, original language of the Old Testament, this is God of my right. O God of my right. And this little phrase occurs only here in all of the Old Testament. And so what David is saying is, God, you know in this situation who is right. Stop for just a moment. 
God knows if you are right. And because God knows if you are right, what that means is God cares about you and he takes notice. And because God is concerned about justice, because he is the God of my right, he will ultimately rescue you. I want you to keep your finger here and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for just a moment in your New Testament, because this is a parallel passage, and it is so very, very helpful what the Apostle Paul says to us here, similarly as to what David said. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and and follow with me starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What God is saying to us is he will defend our cause either now or in heaven at the bar of God. I know a man who said to me one day, I'm very, very bitter. Bitter because my cousin cheated me out of our family inheritance and he got away with it. Let me ask you, what do you need to add to a statement like that? He got away with it for now. Isn't that what we need to say? He got away with it for now, not in eternity. And God is so concerned about justice that he says he will adjudicate every wrong at his judgment bar. Now, I don't know about you, when I read a statement like that, I say to myself, if God cares that much about justice, we can appeal to him now if we will leave the timing to him. That's what David says we know about God. Now, notice again something else we know about God. From this opening verse in Psalm 1, we know that God has answered prayer in the past. Because David says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, those are two very picturesque words. The word distress there means to be in a tight corner. It is like being pinned down with nowhere to go. And the word relief means to be in a large place. So what David is saying, Lord, there have been times in the past I was pinned in a very tight corner... You came through answered prayer and you brought me out of that corner into a large place and you set me free from my distress. By the way, that first night that David fled from Absalom, he was in a very tight corner. Uh, Remember where he was that first night. As he fled with his followers from Jerusalem, they had to cross the Jordan River. It took them all night to cross. 
Absalom had 12,000 soldiers to pursue them. Talk about being between a rock and a hard place. David was in a very tight corner. But you know what the Bible says God did? God caused Absalom to take wrong advice, delay his pursuit, and let David escape. Keep your finger here and turn with me back to 2 Samuel 17 for just a moment. And notice verse 14, what God did between this rock and this hard place. This is an amazing, amazing thing. Look at 2 Samuel 17, 14, and notice what it says. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And you believe that? God messed with Absalom's mind. And because he did, he delayed his pursuit and David escaped. Now what David is saying, if God did that, what else will he do for me? By the way, haven't we all experienced that very thing? We've been in a tight corner. It seemed like there was no way out. And we prayed. And God led us out. There's a young mother we've been praying for who's had cancer, and we've been praying for her for over 10 years. In fact, we began praying for her before I came here. This past week, her mother said to me, my daughter has now been declared cancer-free. We've been praying for 10 years, and now we hear the glad news, my daughter is cancer-free. God answers prayer, does he not? Yes, he does. And if he's done that in the past, he will do it in the future. Notice also another thing we learn about God. In this opening verse of Psalm 1, we learn that God is gracious. David says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, please follow me here. The word gracious has nothing to do with God forgiving sins in this context because David was not guilty of any sins that had brought about this in his life. Rather, the word gracious means the free bestowal of favor. How beautifully balanced this is. All answered prayer is the free exercise of God's grace. God does not owe us anything. The Bible is very clear about that. I heard about a man who got very angry at a church board meeting. And he stood up in the midst of his anger and he shook his fist and he said, I have my rights. And a wiser, more mature man at the meeting said, Brother, you don't mean that. For if we had our rights, we would all be in hell. And that is exactly true. 
So when God answers our prayers, it is not because he owes us something. Rather, it's because he is a gracious God who freely bestows his favor and he reserves the right to answer in the way that he knows best. So we can come to God in our distress, pour out our hearts, but we must always pray requesting never demanding. And God will be gracious to us, but in a way that he knows is best for his purposes. We may pray and ask God for a much-needed raise, and instead we see that raise go to somebody who is less deserving. And God may be saying to us, I've allowed that to happen because I want you to learn to be content and I want you to show how Christians act when they are passed over. And God, in the meantime, will be gracious to us and he will sustain us where we are at. Let me ask you this morning, who's the first person that you turn to when you're wronged, when you've been wounded or mistreated? Isn't it often people? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with turning to people because we need the help of others. But for the child of God, the first person we ought to turn to in our distress is God himself. The great Bible scholar J. Gresham Machen one time said this, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. And now look what we know about God. Look what David says. God is righteous. He, he cares about justice. He has answered prayer in the past. And if we will leave the outcome to him, he says, I'm a gracious God, I will be gracious to you. Now knowing that about God, in the midst of our distress, turn to him unreservedly. Unreservedly. That's the confidence with which we can pray. I want you to notice, as David continues in this psalm, he also tells us how we ought to respond to our enemies. And he says we should respond to those who are opposing us or attacking us now based upon what God knows about you. Now, isn't that interesting? How do you pray to God? Well, you pray knowing what you know about God. Now, how do you deal with people who are opposing you? Well, you respond to them based upon what God knows about you. Would you look at verse 2 here in Psalm 4? And the way this psalm changes is most, most remarkable. Notice what David does. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. 
Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now this is incredible here. Because what David does is he appeals to his enemies directly to change. He tries to win them over to the right side. By the way, isn't that where Christians should always begin in a dispute? Shouldn't we try to win our enemies to the Lord's way? Abraham Lincoln is the one who said the best way to destroy an enemy is make him a friend. And that's what David tries to do here. Now we know it didn't succeed. Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, he committed suicide. Absalom, he fought all the way to the death. But in the process of appealing to his enemies, David was reminded of who he was. And the truth about him caused him to feel less stressed about his opponents. Brothers and sisters, this is remarkable. When we realize what God says about us, we begin to understand we are in a position of strength. And when we are in that position of strength, we feel less threatened by those who are seeking to do harm to us So this is a remarkable thing. I can respond to those who are seeking to wrong me by realizing what God says about me. How insightful this is. Let's let's look at it for just a moment. First of all, David says, if you are in the right... You have integrity. You have integrity. Look at verse 2, O man. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The very first thing that Absalom tried to do was to ruin David's reputation. In 2 Samuel 15, he shared a bunch of lies. He said David was guilty of malfeasance mismanagement of his kingdom and indifference to the needs of his people. None of that was true. And David says here, it is all vain words and it is all lies. Now David knew since God had forgiven him previously of his sin, he was now living in integrity and therefore he could face these people from that position of strength. I had an associate pastor in my previous ministry who was opposed by a small group of people in our church. I hate to say this this morning, but it's true. They despised him. They despised him. One of the things they would do was they would attempt to knock him down by slandering him. And they accused him. Uh, One of the things they said he did was that he um, overspent and misused church money. And so you know what they would say? They would say things like this. That pastor shown so, he sure likes to go first class. Uh, one person came to me one day and said, uh, you know, this leader in our church said that, 
and, uh, and he shouldn't say that because it undermines his character. I'm sure he doesn't mean it when he says that. They were dead wrong. They meant it. And it was a deliberate attempt to undermine him. In all the years that we pastored together, I never saw him respond in kind. He treated them no differently than anyone else in the church. He was the most amazing example that I've ever seen of a believer who never lowered himself to act like his enemies. And you say, how did he do that? He had integrity. He knew they didn't. Therefore, it gave him great strength and peace. In fact, do you know the ringleader of that little group ultimately left that church because he could not overcome that pastor? It was one of the most wonderful days in the history of that church. And when you have integrity... You know my hands are innocent. You have incredible strength and you need not be weak. Second thing God knows about us, you are in God's sovereign plan. You are in God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, this is an amazing, amazing verse. This is a statement of God's sovereign election to salvation. Notice that David uses the singular. He talks about any godly person, so this is a general principle. He says the godly have been set apart for himself. That's a reference to a relationship with God which we receive through salvation. And the word set apart here is a word that means to choose somebody, make them distinct, and then as a result of making them distinct, you now make them distinguished. It is the very word used of God making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Uh, Keep your finger here in Psalm 4 and turn back with me to Exodus 33. And I want you to notice this very same word with this very same understanding in verses 16 and 17. Look at what the Lord said to his people through Moses in Exodus 33, 16 and 17. It's the very same concept of sovereign election to salvation. Look at it. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, set apart, and distinguished? I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth, and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you. By name. Now let me hasten to add here. The Bible also teaches us human responsibility. David found great comfort in God's sovereign selection of him. 
He understood God has chosen me, He has set me apart for a special purpose, and He will accomplish that. It gave Him great, great comfort. The Bible also teaches us human responsibility. The Bible says that we are all responsible to believe, but here and in many other passages, it teaches us that God sovereignly chooses those who do believe. Jesus said this, many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I have to be very clear here this morning, there is a mystery here about this that I cannot fully explain. And I'm sure somebody is saying, Pastor, I'm glad to hear you say that. If we are lost, it is because we have refused to believe. But if we are saved, it is because God chose us in Christ before the world began. I like what Pastor Wearsby says about this mystery. Try to explain election and you may lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. And that's true. Now, did you notice David does not try to explain it? He just takes comfort in it. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord then will hear when I call to him. He finds comfort in this great truth. What he is saying is as one of God's chosen elect, I am in his plan. That plan began in eternity past when he selected me before the foundation of the earth. It is now being worked out in my life as he has brought me to Christ and salvation. And someday it will be finished in eternity future. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now then realize what David is saying. David is saying to his enemies, you are not fighting against David, you are fighting against God. Have you ever looked at it that way? Whoever is wrongfully treating you is fighting against God. Now, God may direct you to take certain steps to protect yourself. But the battle is God's, not yours. If you are a part of God's sovereign plan, and you are living in integrity, and you know In this situation where I'm being opposed and wronged and hurt, I am in the right, God witnessing to my conscience, then the battle is God's. It is not yours. Notice the third thing that God knows about you. God knows you know how to live for God's pleasure. God knows you know how to live for God's pleasure. 
In verses 4 and 5, David now calls upon Absalom and all his supporters to repent and to turn to God. He calls them to stop fighting against God and to begin living to please God. Look at it. Uh, The phrase, be angry, is a word that comes from a word that means to tremble. It could also mean here, fear. And I think in the context, as he's appealing to these people, stop fighting against God and instead live for God's pleasure, that that's probably the better meaning. So, fear and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Do you know this is the whole goal of salvation? To live for God's pleasure. Ephesians 1 tells us that God's whole plan is so that we might be to the praise of His glory. And now as we come here and we wonder, what does it mean to live for the praise of God's glory since that is the whole goal of salvation? These verses show us how. Uh, Let me just put this on the screen this morning. This is God's purpose for you. You were planned for God's pleasure. Now how do we live for God's pleasure? Verses 4 and 5 tell us Let me just summarize it this way. First of all, living for God's pleasure begins with awe of who God is. Tremble, says verse 4, fear. By the way, the fear of God for the Christian is not awe, it is awe. The fear of God for the Christian is not awe, It is awe, awe. And when we have that awe, notice the next thing it will lead to. It will lead to sensitivity to sin in our lives. Do not sin, he says. And then it will lead to living, listening to the voice of our conscience. He says in verse 4, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent as your conscience speaks to you about what the right way is. The fourth thing that it will lead to is bringing the sacrifice of obedience to God. Offer right sacrifices. Do you know what Absalom did when he first started his coup? He said to his father, let me go to Hebron. I want to offer a sacrifice to pay a vow to the Lord. It was all a sham. When he got to, he- when he got to Hebron, he offered the sacrifices but there was evil and duplicity in his heart. His sacrifices were all a hypocritical offering to the Lord. And now God says, here's the real sacrifice. It's when in our worship and our service, we bring him an obedient life. And then notice, all of this is the result of saving trust in the Lord. He says at the end of verse 5, Put your trust in the Lord. Notice this is not something that we create on our own. This is the result of coming to know the Lord in a living trust relationship. And then as a result of that, we want to bring Him the obedience of our lives. We want to listen to the voice of our conscience as the Holy Spirit works in it. We want to be sensitive to sin. And that leads us to a life of awe. 
This is living for the pleasure of God. Can I say this morning? This is the highest honor we can pay to God. The highest honor. And if we are living for the pleasure of God, we are in the very center of His will, and our enemy's plans against us cannot succeed. That's what David says. So look what God knows about you. You have integrity if you are in the right. You are in God's sovereign plan. He will fight the battle. And you know how to live for God's pleasure. That places you in the center of His will. One of our brothers in our church always asks when we're studying the Bible, what are the take-homes? What are the take-homes? And at the end of this psalm, David gives to us the take-homes. Let me just summarize them for you here this morning. Because we can pray based on what we know about God, because we can respond based on what God knows about us, then we can live based on what we know God will do for us. Let me just read the verses for you, verses 6 through 8, and I'll give you the take-homes, and we'll be concluded this morning. Look at the verses. There are many who say, who will show us some good. Aren't there always the pessimists amongst us? Yeah, I believe everything you just said, but who's gonna, is there really going to be any good? Here's the first take-home. God's presence guarantees His goodness. He says, Lord, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Listen, the highest good is God himself. If God has given to us himself, then the lesser good is no problem. So if we have the highest good, that guarantees the lesser good. God's presence is the guarantee of his goodness. Look at verse 7. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Here's the second takeaway. God's joy is His supernatural gift. The greatest joy we ever have is always in relationships. It always is. When I graduated from certain schools and accomplished something, the great joy was having family and friends there to celebrate with me. The greatest joy is always found in relationships, and when you have a relationship with God Almighty, that means you have the greatest joy you can possibly have. Third takeaway, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord... Make me dwell in safety. God's peace comes from Him, not from our circumstances. We all know only God can guarantee anything. Nothing else is guaranteed. So if we're going to be safe, it's because of God's guarantee. And that is not based on circumstances. Let me remind you of these three pastors that I started with. All three of them went on to be greatly used by the Lord. In fact, have blessed countless millions. 
fact, Pastor Warren Wearsby's books are probably on the shelves of every evangelical pastor in the country. Let me tell you what Pastor E.V. Hill did the night the white supremacist called him on the phone and said, we're coming over tonight to murder you. You know what he did? He hung up the phone, rolled over, and went to sleep. Let me hasten to say, God may direct you differently. But here's what Pastor Hill knew. He knew he was in God's sovereign plan. He knew the white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan, could not harm him. He knew the battle was the Lord's. And he also knew, the Bible says, the Lord never sleeps nor does he slumber. And so he must have said to himself, if God is going to stay up all night, no sense in me doing the same. And if God can do that for him, what can he do for you? What can he do for you? Let's take a moment and thank this wonderful God. Father, These are truths that all of us affirm today. We believe them. We know they are right. But somehow, God, in the times of our lives when people are hurting us or things are going in other directions and the future is uncertain, we forget these truths. And we become weak and fearful and anxious. And that is not your desire for us. You desire that rather than growing weaker in fear, we would grow stronger in faith. And I pray today that these words, which were living in a real situation for a man who was facing death at the hands of his own son, I pray that they will be real for us in every circumstance of our life. Oh God, we love you today. And we thank you for all that you have committed to us. For Jesus' wonderful sake. Amen.